All right, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to 2 Samuel chapter 24. 2 Samuel chapter 24, this, we're journeying in the life of David. We've stud- been studying this guy for this to be our eighth week. And this guy named David, when we started, when we first found him, he was this um, ruddy, young, youthful little shepherd boy. We found him in this, he's under this reign and rule of this guy named Saul, the King Saul. And King Saul was once anointed as the king of Israel, but turns out he became a bad king. So David gets famous and, and all, all of a sudden Samuel anoints David as the new king of Israel, the soon to be king of Israel. And we found that David, the unfamous one, the very weak one becomes the king. And last week we left off with this David's probably weakest moment. He's out on his rooftop and he's looking across the, the, the houses and he sees a woman very beautiful and he sees her and he wants her and he takes her for himself and he has a child with her and he tries to cover it up, but eventually he kills the husband to cover up his own sin. David's weakest moment. And what Lyle kind of left us off with last week is David has a tough time ahead. David has a tough time ahead. He, he goes through a lot of mess. Like his, one, of his, one of his sons kills another one of his sons and eventually one of his other sons tries to kill him and David's running around everywhere trying to avoid the death from his son. And he thought your Thanksgivings were bad. His own son is trying to kill him and, and we find in 19 and 20 is his son dies and he buries his son. So we come to the life of David and he's a broken old man that's seen a lot of brokenness in himself and in the world. And chapters 21 through 24 are actually kind of an epilogue. They don't really have any context. They're, they're kind of random stories. So we come to the end of the book of Samuel and we see a broken, messy man. And let's be honest with you, this is a, this is a tough passage this is, a, this, this is a passage I didn't think I would get. To be honest with you, at, at this church, I've always felt affirmed and encouraged. Like at other jobs, when you do the young guy, you get pranked on, you get initiated. I've never felt that here. This has been an awesome place to be encouraged and affirmed until today. Because <laughs> they gave me a doozy. And I wasn't even supposed to preach today. Pastor Brad from our central office was supposed to preach, and he has something to do. Yeah, he has something to do. I'm going to go on vacation this week. This is a hard passage, and I was tempted to like just answer all your questions from this passage. The questions you have from this passage go down and give you a theological lecture on why this Bible is still true. But instead, I, I, I want to get the heart of the passage. So instead of doing that, I want you, as we read this passage, as we go through it, I want you to circle the verses that don't make sense, write the questions down, and then ask your community group this leader this week as you go to community group. I have all the answers for you. <laughs> the Green Lanyard people do too. I'm kidding, but not really. <laughs> I do want to answer some of your questions this morning, but that, I think if we just answered questions, we would miss the point of the passage. Because if we answered all the questions we have about this text, we would inform our minds and we would know this Bible, but it would do much, wouldn't do much to our hearts. This morning, I want to steep into the heart of David and the heart of God and actually reveal our own hearts. What's God doing in our lives? So I want to make two observations. You had your bulletin out. Their notes are in there this week. I want to make two clear observations that we see in this text. 
I want to, I want to show you that the cost of self-reliance is judgment. And the fruit of dependence, the fruit of dependence is sacrifice. The cost of reliance is judgment, but the fruit of dependence is sacrifice. And we'll see that in 2 Samuel chapter 24. So if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in the seat in front of you. It'll be on the bulletin and on the screen. So if you would, stand with me for the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read verses 1 through 10 for my sake and for yours. (laughs) Hear the word of the Lord. Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go and tell, they won't take a census of Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab and the army commanders with him, Go throughout the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and enroll the fighting men so that I may know how many there are. But Joab replied to the king, May the Lord your God multiply your troops a hundred times over, and may the eyes of my king, the Lord my king, see it. But why does my lord the king want to do such a thing? The king's word, however, overruled Joab and the army commander. So they left the presence of the king to enroll the fighting men of Israel. After crossing the Jordan, they camped near Oer and south of the town in the gorge, and then went through Gad and on to Jazir. They went, went to Gideon, the region of Tamtim, Hachi, I don't know, maybe, and on to Danjan and around the fortress of Tyre and all the towns of the Hivites and Canaanites. Finally, they went on to Beersheba and the Negev of Judah. After they had gone through the entire land, they came back to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. Joab reported the number of the fighting men to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 able-bodied men who could handle a sword. And in Judah, 500,000. David was conscience-stricken after he had counted the fighting men. And he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, O Lord, I beg you, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word, Lord. May we, as a people, become dependent on you today. Lord, I ask this morning to speak through your word, by your spirit. Speak, Lord, we ask. Amen. You may be seated. So what's going on in this passage? So you, so you kind of know the synopsis of it. In verses 1 through 10, we see David incite, God incite David to take a census. And David takes the census, uh, otherwise the counsel that he receives says not to, but David takes the census anyway. And he count, he's counting his military. He's seeing how many people he has. He's doing that and he's trying to figure out how many people he's got. And God's anger burned against David and Israel for this. And this guy named Gad, the prophet, if you keep on reading the text, this guy named Gad, the prophet, approaches David and said, a punishment is coming upon you. Choose these three options. He offers them this, 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 this punishment of, of fleeing, then famine, and plagues. And God judges Israel. He judges Israel and he kills over 70,000 people in this story. 70,000. Then he says, stop, that's enough. David, go make me an offering. 
to appease my wrath, to, to make a sacrifice, make an atonement so the judgment will stop. So that's the story. The story is that David takes a census, God judges the census, and David makes a sacrifice. So from that story, I want to make the two observations. The first observation we see is that, that the cost of self-reliance is judgment. You're probably asking the question, what's the big deal about the census? Why is God judging, why is God judging Israel for the census? You think, like, is God making a mountain out of a molehill? Why is, what's it such a big deal? It's just a census. Well, the, the problem is we don't know why. We don't know why God doesn't give us a clear answer. Believe it or not, the Bible is not always crystal clear. Like he doesn't give us an answer, but I think there's some ways we can find out why. I think there's a ways that we see the heart of God and the heart of David revealed and why the census was taken. I think David has become an arrogant and self-reliant man. The first evidence of that we see is that David doesn't take counsel, does he? Joab and the commanders go to him and say, hey, I, don't, I, I want our army to be big, but do you think this is a good idea? He says, the king's word overruled Joab and his commanders. Arrogant men do not take counsel. Arrogant men do not take counsel. And I think even the taking of the census kind of shows us a little bit of David. Why would David take the census? Why would he do it? I think there's two reasons. I think he's trying to show off how big his army is. His army is his baby. This is his thing. He's showing off his Corvette. He's, he's showing off his thing. He's, he's over here. It's like, look how big, look what I've done. This is, this is my thing. Look how big my thing is. This is, this, he, he's trying to show off his prized jewel. Second reason I think this is a sin is that why would you count an army? Well, he wants to count his army so he can count his number over here and see how many people he's got over here. So when he looks across the battlefield, he sees their army. He's like, ah, we got them. Anytime before a football game, when I was playing football, there'd be pre-workout or pre-game, which is stretching and doing running plays. And we'd be on one half, another team, but another half. But all players, if you've ever looked at a football team, they look on the other side. Hey, we're bigger than them. We're faster than them. They don't look like they have a lot of mojo today. We got them. That's what David wants to do. David wants to size up his army to know how big he is compared to other nations. He's became self-reliant. This is the same David. Listen, this is the same David that as a shepherd boy was taking his brother's lunchables. He's taking their lunch and he's taking them their lunch and their brothers get mad at him. And he sees this big Philistine yelling. He's yelling, cursing God. And David's like, who is this guy? Who's going to take care of this guy? He said, I'll do it. The same David that, that is counting his army is the David that looked at Goliath in the face with no armor and looked at him and says, you come, with, you come to me with sword and a spear? I come to you name the living God. He will offer me into your hands, offer you into my hands. The same God that was dependent, the same David that was completely dependent on God against Goliath is counting his military for battle. He had became self-reliant. And God judged him. God brought a swift and harsh judgment. But he gives him three options, right? Look at verse 13 with me. So Gad went to David 
and said to him, shall there come on you three years of famine in your land or three months of fleeing from your enemies while they pursue you or three days of plague in your land? Now then think it over and decide how I should answer the one who sent me. Like, this is serious, but this is kind of funny to me. Like he's giving them the option of what they're going to be punished by. Anybody ever have a parent tell them, hey, um, you did something wrong? Go get the switch in which I'm going to whip you with. Like you're letting your kid choose the instrument of their punishment. And that's what God does. But I even think these, these punishments kind of reveal something about Israel's heart. See, remember, God isn't just mad at David. He's mad at Israel. He's angry at Israel. Israel has been sinning. He's angry at Israel. And I think these these kind of punishments give us a little heart, a little insight into what's going on in Israel. Think about the first first one. It's a famine. The famine is basically the control center. It it would ruin their economic system. Because when you have a lot of goods, more goods than the nations have, those nations are dependent on you. If you were rewind with me to the, to the Genesis story, you have this guy named Joseph. He's in Egypt, and he tells the king, he interprets a, a king's dream that a, a famine is going to hit. And Joseph is in put, in, put in charge of saving up for a famine. And what happens when the famine hits? People come to Egypt for food. So when you have a lot of food in this day, you have a lot of power. You can control the nations. Their economy was booming through food. Think about the military being fleeing. Like they're fleeing. If, they're, if your military is running around, you're unprotected. You're vulnerable. See, David's counting his army because he wants to be a power among the nations. He wants to be imperial force. And God never had that intention with Israel. The goal of Israel was not to be a power among the nations. The goal of Israel was supposed to be a joy to the nations, be a light to the nations. The nations were to look at Israel and find hope. But they're bending toward being a power. They're bending toward self-reliance. And then you have a plague, that the option of the plague. You, you lessen their population, you lessen their economy, their power, and their strength. The more you have, the more powerful you are. God isn't just mad at David. He's mad. He's angry at Israel. He wants to uproot the, the things they become reliant on besides him. And God sends a plague to kill 70,000 people. 70,000. I know you're asking the question, isn't that a little harsh? I mean, it was just, it was just a census. I mean, what, what's the big deal? 70,000? And I have a few responses to that. Know that God is a good father. He's good. He is good. Even in, if you look down in your Bibles at verse 16, he says, enough, the angel is striking the, his people and God says to his angel, enough, stop. Don't hurt any more people. 
It's like God is brokenhearted for his people getting punished. Anybody ever spanked their kids and cried while you're doing it? This is a divine spanking to Israel, and he hates doing it. But he knows he has to uproot the self-reliance through judgment. God had to uproot their self-reliance through judgment. Second thing I want to point out in this passage is that the, the fruit of dependence, the fruit of dependence is sacrifice. Just look with me at verse 10. David was conscience-stricken after he had counted the fighting men. He said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. As soon as he does it, he realizes he's done something stupid. Anybody, anybody ever been there? Most sin, you, like, you do it, you're like, what was I thinking? I'm a fool. See, the Spirit of God was upon David, and he, he was convicted. And I would argue this marks David's life. But you may ask the question, okay, yeah, he, he was sorry, but how do we know that he was actually sorry? How do we know he was actually dependent? You, you, the point is dependence, right? God, David was dependent. How do we know he went from self-reliance to dependence? I think there's three things that show us this in this passage. Think David becomes sacrificial. So God gives David the options of what judgment was to come. 12 through, verses 12 through 15 show us that the judgment, he gives the options for the judgment. And David chooses the plague. So you have a, a famine, you have fleeing, you have plagues. Here's why this is sacrificial for David. If a famine hits the land, the king is going to eat and his family is going to eat. If the army is being chased around, what David, ever had, what, what David had for a secret service back then, they were going to protect him. But if a plague hits, no, oh, there's no exemptions for the king's family. He's including himself in the punishment. He knows he could die. His family could die. That's the first sacrificial thing I think David does in this passage. Even in that passage, he responds, let us fall into the hands of God because I know he's merciful. He wants to be dependent on God. The second reason we see in verse 17, look at verse 17 with me. When David saw the angel, of the, the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I am the one who has sinned and done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall upon me in my family. So David moves from, from being sacrificial in the option he chose to being sacrificial with his life. Hey, stop killing my people, God. Please stop killing these people. Kill me. Kill me. We know David's dependent first because he offers himself in the play, because then he offers himself as a sacrifice. Then he offers a sacrifice. Look what, look what the prophet Gad responds to him with, in, starting in verse 18. On that day, Gad went to David and said to him, go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Urana, the Jebusite. So David went up as the Lord commanded 
to what the Lord commanded through Gad. And Uriah looked and saw the king and his men coming toward him. He went out and bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. Uriah said, why has my, the king come to his servant? To buy the threshing floor, David answered, so I can build an altar to the Lord and the, to, that the plague on the people may be stopped. Uriah said to David, let my lord, the king, take whatever pleases him and offer it up. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering. Here are the threshing sledges and the ox yokes for the wood. O king, Uriah gives it all to the king. Uriah also said, may the Lord, your God, accept you. But God, the king replied to Uriah, no, I insist on paying for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord, my God, burnt offerings that cost me nothing. And David brought the threshing, threshing floor and the oxen and the, the paid 50 shekels of silver for them. David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Lord answered the prayer on behalf of the land and the plague of Israel was stopped. So, you, so what happens here is that David, God is commanding David to go make a sacrifice at a specific location. And most scholars think this is the same location from Genesis 22 where Abraham offers Isaac. And God commands him to make a sacrifice. And as he goes, this guy named Uriah, he's a faithful servant of the king. He sees the king coming and he says, hey, you can have everything you want for this sacrifice. And listen to what David says. I will not burn, make a burnt offering that cost me nothing. See, David not only owns his sin, he knows he needs a sacrifice for it. And not just the oxen, but with his money. See, this is also kind of a, he, he kind of ruins his reputation here. He makes himself vulnerable because the person to blame was the person to sacrifice. David was at fault here. We know David was truly repentant and dependent because he sacrificed the way he chose the plague, offering himself, and then spending money to sacrifice as God commanded him. The beautiful thing about this story is that, that this story points to a greater king to come that will make an ultimate sacrifice. In that story, you see a, a, a king come into the world and he makes a sacrifice that would pay all the debts full. And this sacrifice wouldn't be temporary. This sacrifice would be full. The sacrifice wouldn't be an ox. It would be a man. His name is Christ Jesus, our Lord. Jesus Christ came into the world as king of Israel to pay the debt you cannot pay. So just like Abraham was supposed to offer Isaac and God said to Abraham, do not harm him, there's a ram in the bushes. And just like David should have paid, should have died with his life. God brings the oxen. Jesus Christ, our Lord, the one who shouldn't have been offered, the one that was innocent, the one that was fully dependent on his father, lays down his life. And on the cross, he says, it is finished. The plague is over. The wrath is appeased. Not just temporarily, but in full. 
The good news of the gospel is that Christ Jesus, the innocent one, has risen from the grave and announced to the world, your debt has been paid if you would only believe. This story doesn't just point to David's sacrificial life. It points us to a king to come that will lay down his. The cost of your self-reliance is judgment. The fruit of dependence is sacrifice. So if these things are true, we've got to ask some questions about ourselves. We've got to ask some questions about our own hearts. The first question I think we should ask is, where are we self-reliant? Where are we depending on ourselves for our life? Maybe for you, that's what you protect the most. What do you try to keep safe? What do you try to control? Maybe for you, that's your future. You want to have every step planned. You've been told by every, everybody that you need to have every detail planned out, and if anybody changes your plans, they're against you. Maybe for you, that's your, your family. Maybe there's some parents in here, their greatest fear in their life is if their kid will know Jesus. And you're trying to manipulate, you're trying to control everything in that kid's life to make sure they know Jesus. And here is the truth. You're not in control of that. Your self-reliance will do nothing but drive you to anxiety and depression. Self-reliance will get you nowhere. Maybe you're self-reliant on your money and make sure you have all the money, make sure you have all the control, and make sure you're safe. I don't know what it is for you, but where are you self-reliant? Second question I think we should ask ourselves is, where are we being convicted? In verse 10, we see that David is convicted and he does something about it. He does not wait. He does not hinder. He does not just make sure he hears from several, several counselors. He repents and he sacrifices. Maybe the Lord's doing work in your life and you, you have been nudging him off for months or maybe years. Maybe you have a secret sin going on in your life that nobody knows about and you're terrified of ruining your reputation with it. Maybe there's somebody even in this room that you have a hostile relationship with, you have not reconciled a relationship with, and you avoid them every Sunday and every chance you get. I can't tell you where the Lord's convicting you. But I think this text in this gospel calls us today to repent. Do something about it today. Maybe you're here and you do not call yourself a Christian. You do not say, I'm a follower of Jesus, but you've been coming here a few weeks. Or you visited a day. I don't know what brought you. Maybe you got invited by a friend. Or you got tricked into coming here somehow. But how's, how's that self-reliance working out? When you lay your head on your bed, how do you feel? Because I remember me, I feel like the weight of the world is on your chest. And it's all on me. Your invitation today, if you're not a Christian, is to trust 
Jesus Christ. Depend on him for your future, for your fate, for your salvation. He will have you. Don't delay. Don't wait. Talk to somebody today. Talk to somebody when you leave this service. Somebody in this room, talk to them about having a relationship with Jesus. But there's bad news. If you do not, if you do not ever put your faith in Jesus, if you become a self-reliant person for your salvation, judgment will come. And it'll be much more harsh than what we see in this text. Put your faith in Jesus. Flee from the wrath to come. And he will have you. Where are you convicted? The last question I want to ask is, where are you being called to risk? Where are you being called to risk? Because dependence is a risk. So you got to ask yourself, and where am I trying to control in my life that I'm not worth, I'm not working toward, or I'm not even thinking it's a possibility to risk? I don't know if that is for you. Maybe that's in your future. My prayer and our pastor's prayer for this church is that we would send people out here risking their lives for the gospel in other locations of the world. Maybe for you, it's risking your reputation at work. Risking a friendship that you know is going a bad direction. Risking a relationship that you're dating or a friend that you know isn't good for you. Teenagers in here or middle schoolers in here, my, my request for you is to risk your reputation at your school and maybe risk your popularity when you say, I can't be friends with you, I'm sorry. You're leading me down a path of destruction. Most of us are terrified of sharing the gospel with people. Most of us are terrified of being a witness. And my prayer is that we would risk and we would say, with God it is, and with God it is in a possibility. But with man it is impossible. Let us be a church that seeks the impossible. Let us risk our reputation, let us risk our lives for the sake of Jesus. Where are you being self-reliant? Where are you being convicted? And where are you being called to risk? i to be honest, this, this text has done work on me because as a young guy, my, my temptation is to perform. I want to make sure I do well. I want to make sure I do a good job. I want to make sure I impress people. And as I'm preparing a passage, I'm trying to impress people, God is judging a people for being self-reliant. And I'm at even, even not only just preparing the sermon, even just looking at my life. If some of you don't know my story, I, I lived a life for sports. I live my life dependent on sports. You rip sports out of my life, and I don't even know who I was. And I went to college for playing sports, and I was hurt many times. In my sophomore year, my school closed its doors. And I transferred to another college. In transferring, I found out the school was not only closing, but it was unaccredited. So when I transferred, over 42 of my credits did not transfer with me. So I lost my school. I lost my friends. I lost my credits. 
Then six weeks into training with my new team, I got hurt for the third time on my left knee. And Doc said, I, I, you can still play, but you're probably not going to be able to play with your kids if you do. My body's been laid down on a, on a hospital bed over 13 times. Every winter, I'm terrified because all my bones stiffen up and all my metal in my body starts creaking. And I, I realized after working through this text, it was God grabbing me by the shoulders, turning me toward his face and saying, hey, I need you to trust me. The question for us, church, where will we be dependent? Will we trust him? Let's pray.